You are listening to the Recovering Faith Podcast, an honest and non-judgmental discussion on faith in God and the doubts we often have, why it's sometimes difficult to trust God, and how we can know with a surety that He loves us. This show centers on strengthening and rebuilding our faith after loss, tragedy, or when coming to Christianity from a non-Christian or pseudo-Christian worldview. Now, here is your host, Gene Curl. to you this wonderful spring morning. I had planned on, because I'm so busy, I'd planned on uh, preparing and recording several episodes in advance uh, to prepare for when I move into my house, because I wasn't sure how long it would be before I settled enough to record. But you know what they say about the best laid plans of mice and men. So far, I've been so busy, I've only been able to just have the episode done before it was due. So I haven't had any chance to record ahead, so you're still getting them recorded the week you listen to them, if you're listening to them as they come up. I've uh, never, I never did imagine that there would be so much involved with buying a house. And, uh, you know, there's all the inspections and, and, uh, uh, estimates and all kinds of stuff you have to do. So, and I've been working, uh, working on Saturdays trying to catch up at work. Plus, I'm still making and selling my metal art on Etsy, and uh, I have to do some repairs on my parents' house. The, their house started leaking around the roof, uh, around the chimney during this last storm. And for some reason, I decided that I wasn't quite busy enough and volunteered to teach VBS, or Vacation Bible School, at the church that I go to. And that starts the week I move into my house. So, uh, yeah, I worked half the day today, and then I had to rush home and get cleaned up to get to one of my friend's weddings. And I decided that before I get busy doing something else today, that I should uh, record this podcast with what little I have left my Saturday. And so this is the 60th episode. And uh, for those of you who are regular listeners, welcome back. I'm glad you're here. And if you're new, thanks for listening. And I usually talk about some uh, gospel topic uh, more often than not, uh, but then there are the occasional episodes like this one where I just talk about events in my life, and so this one is going to be about uh, one of those where I talk about events in my life. I've talked a lot about my two-year mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, also known as the Mormons, but... I haven't really talked about returning home from my mission, so that's what today's episode is about. I'm not sure if I'm alone in this or if it's common, but I had a lot more difficulty adjusting to returning home after my mission than I did to adjusting to my mission. I almost felt natural going on a mission, but when I returned home, I felt like a fish out of water, and I had no clear direction in my life. To put it simply, I felt lost. The reason I adjusted to my mission easier than I adjusted to to returning home 
is that I was being prepared to serve a mission from the day I joined the church. But during my mission, my mission president discouraged us from even so much as thinking about what we would do when we returned home. And I did my absolute best to follow his counsel on this and everything else. Even when I didn't agree with my mission president, which was actually fairly often, I felt that it was my duty to do what I was told without complaint, and so I did. As a missionary, I was expected to spend every waking moment on things pertaining to my mission, and I did my absolute best to give my mission and the people of Hawaii my complete and undivided attention, and to not get distracted by what was going on at home or by my plans for after my mission. And as a result, I had no plans for after my mission. Not only was I not prepared for coming home because I was expected to not prepare for it, but there are also many things I was expressly forbidden to do on my mission that I was expected to jump in with both feet as soon as I got home, such as dating. I was honestly scared to come home because I didn't know what to expect and I tried to convince my mission president to extend my mission. But he declined and said that I had served well and it was time for me to go home and live my life. It wasn't only because I was scared to go home that I wanted to extend my mission. I also felt that I hadn't done enough good on my mission and I was always trying to do as much as humanly possible, partially because the LDS Church teaches that you have to earn your salvation and I took that extremely serious. And uh, if you're interested in that, I did talk about that in a in a couple of previous episodes. Uh, one was called The Best Two Years of My Life, and the other one was called The Army of God, and those were both about my LDS mission. It was also extremely difficult to adjust to returning home because I served my mission in Hawaii, the land of eternal summer, and I returned home to Idaho in the middle of a harsh winter. I dressed like an Eskimo and was still freezing more than half the time and I couldn't keep my apartment as warm as I would like because I, if I did, I couldn't afford the heating bill. Before my mission, I did what was expected of me, and I gave all the money I'd saved to the church to help pay for my mission. So when I returned home, I was flat broke and had to live with my parents until I had enough money to rent an apartment. At least I had my parents keep my car for me while I was gone so I would have transportation when I returned home. And the only reason I wasn't encouraged to sell my car before serving a mission to help pay for it was that my car wasn't worth anything. Not too long before my mission, I was involved in a rollover accident that totaled my truck, which I talked about in an earlier episode. And instead of getting another nice vehicle, I purchased an old Ford Escort with high miles that smelled like fish. I found the car in the local paper and I paid cash for it, $600 if I recall correctly. And the guy who sold it worked at a fish farm and that prepared uh, fish for to sell in the stores. And so he would fillet the fish and everything. And so he would get into the car every day smelling like fish. When I returned home from my mission, two years later, the car still smelled like fish. While almost everything went smooth when leaving for my mission, Everything went wrong right out the gate when I'm returning home. Actually, things started to go wrong before I even got to the gate at the airport. 
My flight out of Hawaii to San Francisco was delayed, so I missed my connecting flight. And when I finally arrived in Salt Lake City, my flight to Pocatello, Idaho was delayed by almost eight hours because of a severe storm. When I did get on the plane from Pocatello to, or from Salt Lake City to Pocatello, it was a small prop deer of an airplane, and the weather was still really bad, and it didn't handle it well, and there was a lot of turbulence, and I wasn't really worried, but most of the passengers were worried that we weren't even going to make it, so it was kind of dicey. But it's only a two-hour drive from Pocatello to Salt Lake City, so uh, since I knew I was going to be sitting at the airport for eight hours waiting for the plane, I wanted my parents to come pick me up, but the church said that I had to wait for my flight instead. A lot of people had gathered to welcome me home at the airport in Pocatello, and this was, of course, uh, yeah, you know, they couldn't wear, wait. They waited outside by the baggage claim or whatnot. Anyhow, a lot of people waited. They were going to welcome me home. But when the flight was delayed, they gave up on me and went home. And when I finally did land, the only people waiting for me were my parents. There was a welcome home party planned, for, planned in my honor as well, but because of the flight delay, it was canceled, and I never did have a welcome home party. My parents got pizza when I came home, and my sisters came over, and that was pretty much it. From the airport, my parents took me to my state president's office so I could be released from my mission. And considering the long process and all the ceremony involved with being called to serve a mission and being set apart for it, I was extremely let down by how underwhelming the release was. Basically, my mission, or my stick president, I mean, took my name tag off my jacket and said, Welcome home, Elder Curl. You're released from your mission. What? I said in disbelief. Is that it? That's it. As simple as that, the stake president said. Can't you do something more substantial to make me feel better? I asked. Nope, the president said. That's it. Please, just humor me, uh, humor me, I pleaded. No, Brother Curl, the president said, reaching to shake my hand. He called me brother this time instead of elder to hammer home the point that I had been released from my mission and had joined the ranks of the lay members. You served well, and now you're home. I'm sorry, but that is all there is. Being released doesn't even require the laying on of hands or any special words. I felt the same when I came home, as does most missionaries. I felt a, loss, a bit lost when I came home, too, but you will get in the groove of things and get in the groove of life soon enough. I've spoken to your bishop, and you will be given a calling on Sunday. And that was it, and we left his office. As promised, the bishop wasted no time in giving me a calling, and he also wasted no time in applying pressure to get me to date. Basically, as soon as I got home from my mission, it was like, congratulations on completing a successful mission. Now, hurry up and get married. It wasn't just my ward and stake leaders that pushed the marriage thing, but every older member that I knew. At my very first family home evening at the bishop's house, after I got home, the bishop had a young woman sit on either side of me, which made me extremely uncomfortable. For the past two years, I had been told that I had to stay at least arm's length from all females unless I was giving them a priesthood blessing. And now, I was sandwiched between two beautiful young women, 
and they were sitting so close that I could feel them breathing. I'm not saying that it caused any physical reaction on my part, but let's just say that I felt compelled to keep my scriptures laying open on my lap for the duration. On my mission, I was told that my mission was the most important thing I would ever do in my life. But when I got home, I was told that a mission, while it is to bring people into the church, is as much about preparing the young man for marriage and leadership in the church as it is about proselyting and winning converts. As I mentioned in the episodes about my mission, I realized during my mission that preparing the young people for a lifetime of service in the church was more important, or at least as important, as bringing people into the church. Otherwise, they would only send the best prepared and most faithful members, which would mean that they would mostly send retired people to serve missions. A few weeks after returning home, my bishop called me into his office and he asked me how many dates I'd been on that week, and I told him that I'd only been on one date since returning home. My bishop then got out a hot plate, sat it on his desk, and he put a kettle of water on it, which I thought was a bit strange. But he didn't say anything about it for a while, and I didn't ask. After we talked for at least 10 minutes, the bishop pointed out that the hot plate was set on one, its lowest setting. And then he looked at me and said, Brother Curl, how long do you think it would take for the water to boil at this setting? It would never boil, I responded, already suspecting where the conversation was headed. That's correct. What setting do you think it would need to be at for the water to boil, he asked me. At least eight, I said, but possibly ten. I want you to go on as many dates as possible so you can fulfill your duty to God and get married, the bishop said. Just like the water will, will never boil at one, you will never get married by only going on one date per week. I will ask you each week how many dates you've been on, and the answer better be more than one. I've never been overly confident, and I have absolutely never been a ladies' man. So it's never been the easiest thing for me to put myself out there and ask for a date especially so soon after my mission. Whenever I was turned down, which was more often than I wasn't, I would decide there must be something wrong with me and I would lose all motivation to ask anyone else out. Despite the bishop and stake president constantly harassing me about it, I often went weeks without asking anyone out at all because I was more uncomfortable with being rejected than I was with being harassed by my local priesthood leaders. I suspected as well that a lot of the ladies that did agree to go out with me only did so because they were poor college students and liked the idea of someone paying for their dinner. One day, I called a young lady to ask her out, and I was unaware that she shared a name with two other girls in her apartment. This was in the days before everyone had cell phones, so I called the landline phone for the apartment and asked to speak to Sarah. And the girl who answered the phone informed me that there were three Sarahs there and that she was not one of them. And she asked me which Sarah I wanted to speak to. There were six girls in that apartment, so half the girls in the apartment were Sarahs. It occurred to me that I had no idea what her last name was, so I had to quickly think about how to describe which Sarah I was calling for. And knowing she was from South American origins, I said, uh... The one who's not white? 
Of course, I immediately thought I had said something wrong and was afraid that I would offend her, but we had a good laugh about it later. We dated for a few months, and then she broke up with me so she could marry one of my friends. I was heartbroken for a while, but there were no hard feelings, and we're still friends today, at least on Facebook. Honestly, I am surprised that we're still friends since I left the church and I am outspoken about the church not being Christian, despite its name. Uh, Most people who are in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints will completely write anybody off who leaves the church and they won't associate with them anymore. So I say I'm surprised that she still wants to be friends. In the church, the responsibility for dating and getting married is placed firmly on the men's shoulders. And one of the things the local leaders of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints likes to say, at least in Idaho, is, if a man doesn't get married, it is his fault for not putting the effort in to get married. But if a woman doesn't get married, it's the man's fault for not asking her. I didn't get anywhere near asking for anyone's hand in marriage for quite some time. And most of the time, because of my alarming lack of second or third dates, I felt like a fly fisherman trying to catch a fish with a fly that had been tied on a straight piece of wire instead of a hook. And for those of you who aren't as familiar with the LDS Church, a big part of the reason why they push marriage so strongly is that it is believed that in order to get to the highest level of heaven, that a person has to get married in the temple. And uh, they believe that it's that there are spirits waiting in some kind of a uh, pre-existence, and they're waiting for you to have children so they can be born, so that they can uh, be tried and tested and eventually get to the highest level of heaven themselves. And so it's because of... Uh, it's because of the beliefs on pre-existence and the beliefs on uh, what it takes to get to heaven that the LDS Church is pre- pushes marriage so much. To be honest, a lot of the time I wasn't sure if I actually wanted to find someone and get married or if I only thought I did because it was so important to the church. One of the things I heard during a young single adult fireside was that any two people, man and woman, could be happily married together if they were living according to the dictates of the church, a statement with which I wholeheartedly disagree. The statement that any two people living the church's version of the gospel would be ha- uh, would have a happy marriage was likely said both in an attempt to get people married off sooner and also to reinforce the teaching that the church is to be the most important thing in a member's life. A young single adult fireside, by the way, is a church meeting on Sunday nights held at the church's institute of religion or one of the stake centers where a general authority speaks either in person or broadcast via satellite to an assembly of young adult singles between the ages of 18 and 30. It's generally assumed that if you're still single by 30 that you're doing something wrong and there's no hope for you and then you're expected to move on and attend a family ward instead of a singles ward. Besides, it would be kind of creepy for a person crowding 40 trying to date 20-year-olds. Even though Brigham Young did it. I have taken a lot of girls to a fireside as a first date, which doesn't really count as a date, before asking them out on a proper date. For some reason, 
despite the fact that I was doing exactly what the church told me I should be doing. A lot of girls felt that I was too devoted to the church and said they were looking for a man who was not such a Peter priesthood, which is a, a Mormon term for a man who was overly dedicated and devoted to the church and bases all of his life decisions on whether or not the church would approve. The female equivalent is called Molly Mormon. I always thought that it was odd that some girls thought I was too churchy, since I was the epitome of everything they were taught their entire life to look for in a man. I was a returned missionary, in good standings with the church, never missed sacrament meeting, attended the temple every chance I got, faithfully did my home teaching, and was attending college and getting good grades, as well as being the best employee I could possibly be to my employer. Apparently, a lot of girls wanted what they wanted, and not what they were told by the church to want, and the guys who only intended often enough to be considered active, but really didn't care much about the church beyond that, got more dates than those of us who towed the line. Looking back, I can see why she was upset, but one time a girl asked me to come over to her apartment to watch a movie when it would be only the two of us, and I declined. When she asked why I didn't want to come, I said it was because I wanted to follow the admonition of Paul, the apostle, and avoid even the appearance of evil. And by that I meant I didn't want it to look like we were participating in any premarital sexual relations, and I didn't even want to leave the opportunity for anyone to think we had the opportunity. Of course, she misunderstood what I was saying and thought I was insinuating that she was sinful or looked apart. Not only did I try not to be alone with the girl, I also refused to date girls who were not active in the church or who, not, or, or who weren't members of the church. Looking back at that point in my life, I sometimes wonder if I would have jumped off a bridge if the church had asked me to. It isn't that I didn't have any doubts about the church at that point in my life, but rather I was convinced that any doubts I had were placed there by the devil, and that I was sinning by allowing myself to doubt. The first time I had any serious doubts about the church and went inactive was at least two years after returning home from my mission, and at first I hated myself for it. It's kind of ironic that one of the things that caused me to allow myself to question the church the most, which eventually led me to leaving, was dating a bishop's daughter. She was also the one who was able to convince me to budge on my standards in following the rules of the church especially with dating and spending time alone unsupervised while dating, which almost got me excommunicated, which is a story for another day. Actually, I covered that relationship in a previous episode, but I don't remember which one it was. The LDS Church puts such high standards on everyone, impossible standards, that for anyone who actually cares and is trying to live the way the church says they should, it's easy to feel guilty and hate yourself for not doing enough. At this point in my life, shortly after my mission, and at many other points in my life, I have felt like Bilbo Baggins when he said, I feel thin, sort of stretched, like butter scraped over too much bread. I've always had the tendency to take on more than I can handle, and then stress out over not doing enough, especially when I feel it's expected of me. When I first got home from my mission, I was working two jobs, construction during the day and at a potato plant processing plant at night, both full-time. However, it didn't take too long for me to realize that working nine hours overnight in American Falls 
Idaho, and then driving back to Pocatello, Idaho, 30 miles away, sometimes in an extremely dicey weather, and working 9 or 10 hours during the day only to get a few hours of sleep before driving back to American Falls was not sustainable. After a few months of that, and I don't know how I lasted that long, I put in my two weeks notice with a potato plant and only worked for the construction company. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed that first night of sleep that I got instead of working. Sometimes you have to take pleasure in the simple things in life. Even when I was working two full-time jobs, I never missed church, and I did my absolute best not to miss family home evening at the bishop's house. Even if I had worked all night and got off just in time to make it church, I felt bad if I fell asleep during church. And this was when church was still three hours. During my entire mission, I was told that the more faithful and obedient you are on your mission, the more blessed you'll be after your mission. But I felt anything but blessed after my mission, and it wasn't long after returning home that I felt my life was falling apart. I had a series of bad things happen to me that were in no way my fault. From not getting paid at work because my boss was having financial problems and getting behind on my bills and having issues with a dishonest landlord and being given 20, a 24-hour notice to vacate the property because the person I rented it from didn't own it and therefore wasn't even allowed to rent it. It didn't take me long to get tired of hearing people say that my trials were blessings in disguise. I would often say to people, I would appreciate it if occasionally I would have blessings that actually looked like blessings. One time, my brother-in-law, my younger sister's husband, said that he'd never known anyone who had more back, bad luck than I did after a light fell from a pole on a parking lot and did some substantial damage to my car. Not only did my bad luck make me wonder if God was mad at me, it also made me have serious doubts about whether or not serving a mission had been the right move. And at this point in my life, looking back, while I do regret that I had brought anyone into the Mormon church, I don't regret my mission overall because it was a learning experience and it helped me it helped me to learn a lot of things and actually a lot of the experiences on my mission are what aided in helping me get out of the church anyway. So I'm not sorry I served a mission, but I regret that I brought people into the church. And anyhow, but I had talked a lot about my mission, so I thought I should talk about a little bit about what it was like coming home from my mission. And uh, basically, a mission is really built up, and then when you get home, it's like, oh, no big deal. And so, yeah, that was, it was, I had a really difficult time adjusting to coming home from my mission, and uh, life didn't seem to get improve after my mission and life was hard for a long time so I'm blathered on long enough so I guess I'll stop. Anyhow thanks for listening to this episode and uh, if you have any questions or comments you can go to uh, my website genecurl.com and you can either comment on an episode or you can uh, go to the contact me page 
I would uh, I greatly appreciate hearing people's uh, feedback so also if you haven't already I would greatly appreciate it if you would swing by iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts and give this podcast a review and a uh, rating that greatly helps people to find the podcast so thanks again and god bless thanks for listening to the recovering faith podcast please rate and review this show and share it with your friends and family you are loved